0: As we continue with the ministry of God's word, turn back to the old book, amongst the books of Moses, we come to Exodus. This morning we are taking up the text in Exodus chapter 12. Let's stand together for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant word, a living word, living and bread for the saints. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh that night. Roast it in the fire, with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw. Or boiled at all with water, but roasted in the fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it, with a belt on your waist, and your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So this day shall be to you a memorial and you shall keep it as you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread on the first day. You shall remove leaven from your house for whoever eats leavened bread from on the from the first day until the seventh day that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the feast of the unleavened bread, for on this same day I will have brought your armies uh, for on the same day will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance in the first month on the 14th day of the month at evening you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening for the 7 days no leaven shall be found in your houses since whoever eats what is leaven that same person shall be cut off From the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing, leaven in all your dwellings, you shall eat unleavened bread. Thus far the word of our God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. O Lord our God, as we are assembled here before you, a people called out of the world to be your people, a people whom you have redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, a people whom you have set your mark upon, a people whom you have given your spirit to, to dwell within us. Father, we have come for the purpose of worshiping you. And, Lord, as we now sit under your word, we pray that you would magnify the name of Christ, that as we hear the word, Christ would be exalted. Bless both the preaching and the hearing. Father, we need your spirit, for we are but weak and frail vessels. Lord, would you work in us to show forth the powerful working of your spirit, that you would gather us under the banner of Christ, that we who are redeemed, would rejoice to be under his blood. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Children, I want you to think along with your parents about the question, what is it to be a slave? We hear that term thrown around, slavery and reparations and the oppression of it, but what is it to be a slave? Not one of us has ever been a slave to another man or a woman. We've not had the experience of slavery. We don't know what it's like to begin every day waking up early, wondering what will be the demands of our master or our mistress, what will be required of us, things that we will have no say in. There'll be no negotiating, no arguing. We will do as we're told when man's desire will be our command. And disobedience then would bring swift and painful punishment. That's the way that the Hebrews lived in Egypt in those days. They were slaves to the Egyptians. There was a yoke of bondage upon them. There was the whip against their back. They did not have the freedom to do as they would, but they did as the Egyptians would have them do. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had called a man Moses, and you remember his name means to draw out. He was drawn out of the water, and God indeed was sending him to the Israelites to draw them out of Egypt, to draw them out of the house of bondage, to bring them out to God in a wilderness place. He was sent to rescue the people from slavery. And indeed, Moses came declaring that the Lord had heard the cry. He had sent him to deliver them out of the house of bondage. But how will this be done? Where's where's Moses' army that he could deliver the people? Who will break the yoke off? From the necks of the people. Well, as we've seen thus far with the plagues, it is God who acts. The, the covenant faithful Lord of the Hebrews, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of their forefathers, was showing even that He was their God, and it was He who would deliver them. It's the Lord who delivers. We have heard how the Lord had struck blow after blow upon Egypt nine times. Severe plagues upon the people, painful plagues, costly plagues. The land of Egypt is destroyed, it's in it shambles, and it's in ruins. But the people are still slaves. You can imagine as each plague comes and the aftermath of it, the people wonder, you know. When, how? Where were the deliverance come? Here we are. After all this, we are, we're still slaves. And then came this announcement: The Lord was to strike the firstborn son throughout all of Egypt in the night. Every family, of the Egyptians would know this. The Lord would shed blood to ransom his people and set them free. God was going to accomplish. But the Hebrew slaves could not. Salvation, as we know, is of the Lord, not of man. Let's take careful notice. Nowhere in this account of the deliverance of, Egypt, of Israel from Egypt, nowhere are we told that uh, the Lord commands Israel to fight doesn't tell them to take up the tools they had of their trade, whatever they might have been, hammers or sides or, or trowels, and, and to rise up in a revolt and, and to put to death the Egyptians and to somehow escape from the bondage, for indeed they were not capable. Egypt was strong. And remember, it was the fear of the Pharaohs for, for generations that as the Israelites multiplied, that They would become a threat. That They would somehow organize themselves and overthrow the Egyptians or that some other nation would come to invade Egypt and the Israelites would throw in with them. And there were so many of them. That was their fear. But Israel will not be delivered by their own might. Israel will not be delivered by their own cleverness. It is the Lord, the covenant faithful Lord, who has said everywhere and elsewhere, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. As he told, I think it's Elijah, who was also threatened. Be still and know that I am the Lord. You know, the Lord still says that to us today. There's things that we, we feel enslaved to or, or oppressed by, that we even sometimes expend ourselves with tremendous energy trying to escape that oppression or the bondage of sin or uh, an oppressive boss, but it's the Lord who delivers. The Lord hears the cries of his people. Let's remember something else. As we look at Israel, Israel was the apple of God's eye, but it's not because they were holy. Very much they're they're like the Egyptians. There was no righteousness to be found in them. Uh, Like all men, their righteousness was but filthy rags. There was nothing commendable about them. Uh, They were not a people that were attractive that that some king might come and say, oh, these these are a people worthy. Uh, Look at their stature. Look at their standing, and I will deliver them. It was true of the Israelites that their sins went up over their heads. Can we identify with the Israelites in their slavery as sinners? That's our situation. Our sins go up over our head. We have no might. We have no power. There's nothing commendable in us that God should look upon us and say, oh, these are a people worthy of my love and, and my affection. No. It was God who set his affection upon his people before the foundation of the earth. Israel needed to be delivered, not just from the Egyptians. They needed to be delivered from their sin. Uh, they're, They're most focused on the Egyptians, the yoke of bondage, the stroke and the blow of the whip. That's what they're thinking about. But Israel's real problem was their own sin, as it is true for all of the children of Adam. We're sinners. We're bound in sin. We're unable to escape from sin. That's where the oppression is that is upon us. And in order to be delivered, we need a Redeemer. We need one who is able to deliver us to the uttermost. We need a redeemer, one who could give us a new heart, the one who can cleanse us from unrighteousness. And in order to do this, it requires the shedding of blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And we see that prefigured in this This night of the plague, of the death of the firstborn. We see this as Israel, as we've heard in the text, was preparing for that night when the death angel would come, that they were to come under the blood of another, a substitute that had died in their place. Surely this remarkable historic account points to the coming of one of Jacob's greater son of the tribe of Judah, even the Lord Jesus Christ, who would come as a spotless lamb and shed his blood for us. So you see the lamb, a, a lamb without blemish as he was slaughtered and the blood then was used on the doorpost and the lentil and death passed them by. It's a clear signpost. One of the best in the Old Testament pointing to our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God who came into the world to save sinners. We see also in this text that then God establishes an annual feast to to commemorate the events of this night. So remarkable were these events that God gave them the feast of the Passover. It wasn't just a night, it was a week-long uh, event uh, the, the Passover itself was one, uh, one night, and yet for a week long they had a celebration, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, no leaven to be found in their house, and they were to observe it and to keep it throughout all their generations. We can use four main headings. You have it in your uh, outline in your worship guides, preparation, application, celebration, instruction. That is preparation, the killing, and the eating of the lamb application, the sprinkling of the blood of the Lamb, celebration, then the feast of the unleavened bread, and then instruction for them, every generation of the Israelites. And it it continues to be instruction even for us, for as we will see, it points to a greater sacrifice, even of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who came into the world to save sinners. So we begin with preparation, the eating The killing and eating of the lamb. We find that predominantly in the first 11 verses of this chapter. Now, every other plague that has come upon Egypt uh, was announced and then swiftly fell. Now, yes, we know at the end of each of the three, there was no no announcement to to, uh, Pharaoh, to to Egypt, uh, but only to Moses. But these were announced, and and then they came swiftly. Often the very next morning, those things fell. But the tenth plague is different. There's there's a dramatic buildup. The last week, last week we looked at the, the prolonged announcement or pronouncement of the coming event, and now we find ourselves hearing about significant preparations that were to be made, not by the Egyptians. But by the Israelites, if you think about this, by and large, Israel has been looking on as these things have happened. The first few plagues they experienced, but then they've been looking out as Egypt receives stroke upon stroke and blow upon blow. And this time, Israel has responsibilities. Israel is to make preparation. Israel must pay attention to the word of God that comes to them through Moses. Well, the first thing that we find out as the chapter opens that God's establishing a new calendar for Egypt, I mean, for Israel. Now you think about it, they've been in Israel, I mean, in Egypt for hundreds of years. and their calendar, they probably pretty much followed that of their oppressors, that of the Egyptians. And, and they were tied to, to false god and idolatry and, and idolatrous celebrations revolving around the the. Uh, the penalty of all these Egyptian gods. But God says, No, I'm giving you something new. This month, this month that I'm establishing now shall be your beginning of months. This will be the first month of your year. In it you shall, and, and it shall be the first month of the year to you in perpetuity, perpetual perpetuity, on and on and on. And so God says, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, and saying, On the tenth day of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. So they have this specific commandment. God is instituting a feast week, a, a time of celebration. God gives very specific instruction that there's a lamb that is to be taken. It is to be, the language is not a, a male, as we see, goat or Uh, a kid goat or a lamb, but of the first year, that is to say within its first year. Uh, It's not a year old, but it's not yet a year old. And and you see that particular because God goes on to command that if the household is too small for the lamb, let the Join with a neighbor. So a, a father should look at the size of his family, and, and then from the the one the, uh, animals that are a year old or less, pick one of the size that's sufficient for his family. And, and maybe he has a very small family, and, and all the lambs are too large. And so then he has to join with his neighbor and pick one then that would serve two of the households. Now, let me sound practical, but you know what's happening there? God is teaching them community. You think about when we come to the Lord's table. We don't come as individual families. We come as the congregation of of the church. We come as God's people. We come together that the Lord reminds us as we're gathered together, that we come together, that we would feast together. God is teaching this principle to the people. Because you can imagine in slavery... You know, maybe your neighbor goes off to one job. You, you maybe you see him in the morning, and and off he goes, and you go to another job, and you, you really little sense of connection. Well, I know he's a descendant of Abraham too, but here God's doing what? He's having them come together for a meal. A meal is where we have community and fellowship. So we make it a point to have a, a monthly fellowship meal to come together. It's to take what we do weekly in worship and, and remind us then to, to sit down at table and to eat together because things happen when we're eating together. We have conversations. We get to know each other. And here God is even teaching that to them, then that they should take from the kids or from the lambs one that is sufficient something in that first year. But not just any lamb not just any kid goat what does God say he says it is to be without blemish you know it's it's one that you can look at and you know it's not lame uh, there's there's not blindness there there's no sores uh, you look at it it's like this is a really fine animal you know that if you're raising such animals it's like now I want to breed this one this this will then tend to produce more quality offspring. God says you're to take that one. Without blemish. There's a cost in that. You know? We may all be very removed from farming and the idea of breeding. You know, I grew up around the farm and, and understand that it is just very important that, you know, if you had a kind of a sickly cow, you know, his leg stance wasn't real good, you don't want to breed that one. You want the better ones. You want one without blemish. God says that's what you're to pick. Now even here we see another pointing to Christ, the Lamb of God who was perfect, spotless, without blemish, without fault. They don't understand that yet. These are things that are unfolding. The Lord's teaching them, as we will see as we make our way through Exodus. Israel is so full of Egypt, and Egypt is so full of them, and they've got so many false ideas about God and how to worship God and right at the outset as he establishes the beginning of the year and this, this feast, this remarkable feast of the three feasts that they will have this is chief the feast of unleavened bread the Passover, the remembering these days. God says pick one without blemish pick one that's the right size to feed your family or if needs be joined with another well then the text goes on to tell us that to do this on the tenth day you're to select that animal and to set it aside until the 14th day. Now, why that? Well, it gives you four days to really look at the animal. Did I miss something? You You can see it walk or other things so that you make sure really this is a quality animal. And then God tells them they were to take that animal and to kill it on the 14th day at twilight. That is the period of the day as the light is fading and before the darkness of night settles in. in those twilight hours, the animal was to be killed. Now we know that it would be necessary then in the killing that some of the blood was to be captured. They would, literally, children, they would cut the throat of the animal. And then they would have a bowl, a basin prepared to catch that blood because there's something to be done with this. And again, this is new to Israel. Later God's going to tell them you don't ever eat meat with the blood in it. They are always to bleed it out. But what do we look at verse 7, we see, then they shall take some of the blood. That is from the spotless lamb or, or male kid goat. You're to take some of the blood and to put it on the 2 doorposts and on the lentil of the house. Don't miss this. They're not intense. Israel was very much settled in Egypt. This was their home. They had houses. They were very established there. And they had put the blood on the doorpost in the lintel. That is the piece across the top that would then uphold the roof, the place where they lived. And we find out later that that was to be sprinkled. And so even as this blood is put there, uh, they took a branch and they dipped it in the bowl and they sprinkled it on to those doorposts, sprinkling it on the lentil. And I'm going to imagine, I don't think this is too wild to go, and this isn't a stretch that when they understand what the purpose is, you get on down, you know, that this death angel is going to come and they're going to see the blood, that they made sure that <laughs> you could see the blood on the, on the sides of their door. That they weren't stingy. But we're not told here, but we understand that it's the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. We're going to see later Moses is going to baptize the entire congregation of Israel. When they're at Mount Sinai, he will take a branch of hyssop and dip it into the blood, and he will sprinkle the congregation My friends, this is the picture of the Holy Spirit who comes down upon us, unwashed, guilty, filthy sinners, and it is flying the blood of Christ to wash and to cleanse away our sins. It's by sprinkling. Here we see the mode that God has appointed for baptism because of who it pictures, the Holy Spirit coming down from on high and God cleansing his people with the blood of the Lamb. So then to put it there, Sprinkling on the on the doorposts and the lentil. and then what are they to do? It's, this passage doesn't have it clearly. We're going to see it as this account is recounted and established. They were to go into the house, that house that had the blood on it. They were to go into the house and to eat that animal. They were to eat it in the house. And we see they they shall roast the fire. God's very specific. You're not to boil it. It's to be the whole animal, the head on it, and the entrails in it. That's unusual. But there's a picture here, again, this is to come later, particularly in Leviticus. This is the picture of a whole burnt offering, the sacrifice for sin, that the whole of the animal was to be roasted in the fire. A picture of placing an animal upon the altar, that the whole of it would be consumed. And they were to eat it with bitter herbs. Why bitter herbs? Because slavery is bitter. They have lived in bitterness. That has been their life for hundreds of years, the bitterness of the oppression, of the yoke of bondage and the difficulty. And so even in the eating, there was blessing. Now, I follow a guy on YouTube, and he eats cuisines all over the world. And you know what? People eat bitter herbs with their meat. It's, there's, it brings something of a balance to the, what you're eating. To offset the name of the flesh so it's, this wasn't an odious thing per se, but you would have the, the bitterness of the herbs reminded of the impression. God's more specific even than that. Verse 9, do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in the fire with its legs, head in its legs and its entrails. And then God goes on to say, "Not some of it, not let none of it remain until the morning." So again, you're to pick one that's the right size for those who will eat, whether it's your family alone or joined with another family. And if perhaps you don't eat it all, it is to be roasted in the fire. You're to put it in the fire so that it is all consumed. Again, this is looking forward to when God will command Moses to command the people with concerning the sacrifice of a whole burnt offering, the entirety of the male kid. Goat, or the lamb it was to be consumed, because this points to a redeemer who wholly gave himself up for his people. So God gives them this instruction concerning the animal how to prepare it, how to eat it, and where they're to eat it. But it goes on further. Verse 11 And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet. In your staff in your hand. How do we usually like to eat? Right? Kind of loosen the belt, maybe put on your comfortable clothes, right? You know. Shoes you've worn all day, you know, slip some slippers on. You know, you want to be comfortable, enjoy the meal. You don't want to be distracted by those things, right? God said, No, not this time. You're to be dressed, ready to go, with your belt on your garment, which is the idea because they would take these flowing robes and they would reach down and pull the cloth from the middle and bring it up through the belt. And it was the girding up of the loins and taking a flowing garment in a sense, turning it into something like trousers because that enabled you to work more freely without your, your garment getting in the way. But it also enabled you to travel to walk more freely than having a robe flapping around. such so the, the, having the belt on your waist, was this picture of girding up your loins, your sandals on your feet, ready to go. Not just barefooted as you might go, you're, you're traveling. Put the sandals on your feet. And furthermore, your staff, your walking staff. This is different than the rod of Aaron and Moses. This was a staff that was for a trip uh, to provide stability. You, you, you get weary when you hike. Some of you know that. And it's nice to have the staff to lean on. God says you have your staff in your hand. All you're to be dressed out, you're to have the kit ready to journey because you're leaving. And then, no. Oh, furthermore, and then again in verse 11, so you shall eat it in haste. There's an urgency. There's an expectation that on this night God is going to do something, and then he tells them something. It is the Lord's Passover. God is giving this to them that they would remember this night, even as they're preparing for this very night. This is the Lord's Passover, the blood on the door, that the death angel would pass over them. It is a feast in the first month of the year. And then, whatever misgiving, whatever standing is the Lord's Passover, Moses keeps giving them instruction. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now just notice something. We've We've been careful not to take each plague and figure all this stuff out. Which of the gods of uh, Egypt is is in play here? You know, there seems to be some connection, but God's not made that connection. Moses has not made that connection. And we want to be careful not to spend a whole lot of time on that. Some of the commentaries I've read, they spend a whole lot of time about Egypt and their gods and all that. It's like, no, 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 I want to stay with the main story here. This time, God says it's against all the gods of Egypt. This Plague is against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. And then there's that powerful statement I am. The Lord. That is, I am the covenant faithful Lord, the God of Abraham and Isaac of Jacob. I am the one who has proved myself faithful to Abraham, who when he was old I gave him a son, a son of promise, through Sarah, who was barren and well past the years of bearing. I am the covenant faithful Lord who gave to Isaac and Rebekah when she was barren a son. "...whom you have descended from, even Jacob, and and I am the Lord of Jacob your father, who in his wanderings, yea, even in his disobedience, and his rebellions, I was faithful, I preserved him, and I redeemed him, and here you are descending from him. I am the Lord. This is the tenth plague. Remember last week we were talking about God didn't say, okay, Moses is going to be ten plagues." They just kept coming until this one. God says, this is the last one. And with this last one, we see what God has been showing all along. Remember what the contest was? We would have it ourselves. We think we're sovereign. Be honest. As sinners, fallen in Adam... We think we're sovereign. We think we're God. That's why we fight as brothers and sisters. That's why we have conflict as husbands and wives. That's why we have conflict with co-workers. We're all sinners, and every sinner thinks, I'm God. I praise God that God works in his people, and we're learning not to live that way. But Pharaoh lived in a culture and amongst the people that had for centuries supported this idea that he was God and everybody really lived that way. And God has greatly humbled him. That is what God has been doing. He has been making himself known through the plagues. And now God will bring such a plague that Pharaoh will really see his weakness. The first nine plagues brought destruction throughout the whole land. made way. Pharaoh's officials say, Do you not see that the land is destroyed? And yet Pharaoh dug in his heels. But now... There's death coming. And we know in the last audience that, that Pharaoh had with Moses, and it was in the end of chapter 10 and interrupted, The more is recorded him in chapter 11. God's told Pharaoh this is going to happen, that indeed he's going to strike his firstborn, the one who he sees, are the one to sit on the throne in the future. What the Lord was about to do is so great that Israel... For centuries, the first month, every year, the first month, they're to mark this, they're to remember this, they're to celebrate this. You know what? That's not unbelievable to us. That, that's not far from us. And I'm not thinking about Christmas or or Resurrection uh, Day, you know, when so-called Easter comes. I'm thinking about this day, the first day of the week. We don't mark it once a year The beginning of every week, what do we do? We come together to remember. He is risen. Christ is risen. Our God is faithful. He sent His Son into the world, and He died for our sins. When it seemed all was long, when He was crucified and dead on a cross and buried in a borrowed tomb, when it seemed all was lost, then God showed His power above all, that He brought forth His Son. Christ arose. And every week we begin the week. Brothers and sisters, do not lose sight of this. Every week we're reminded Christ is risen. Satan is defeated. The power of sin is broken in our lives. We have been set at liberty. We don't need to live in sin any longer. We live in Christ. We're to live to the glory of Christ. We're to walk in the fullness of Christ. We're to live with the Holy Spirit in us that the Father sent through His Son to us to enable us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. I need to be reminded of that the first day of every week, and you do too. And that's why it's a grievous thing when we absent ourselves from the house of the Lord. When you're on vacation, make sure you find a place to go and worship on that Lord's day while you're away. More than we realize, we need the first day of the week. We need to come together. We need to be reminded of something greater, not the death of the firstborn of Egypt, but indeed the death of our Savior. But not only his death, but his resurrection on this day. We need that. We need to commemorate it. We need to so celebrate it. We need to live by it. God has accomplished this. Praise be to God. Well, secondly, we want to consider an application. You know, they were told back in verse 7 to, to get some of the blood, and, and, and then God told them what to do with the blood. And It wasn't just blood in a bowl. It It wasn't just to keep the blood from spilling on the ground and making a mess. No, the blood had a purpose. The blood was shed for a purpose. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Now, the blood of that animal did not remit their sins but that blood then became a sign on their door so that when God went throughout the land that he would see that blood on that household and he passed over that house isn't that incredible I mean think about this God knows who are his own God didn't need to come to a door and go "Now let me see if I can remember who lives here Oh, that's right. These are the descendants. Uh, this is down through the line of Naphtali. Okay, these are in Israel. Passover. God didn't need that. What does he say? He said, this will be a sign to you throughout your generations that I did this. Now, God does see it. and He says, I see it. But it's not because of the weakness in God. It's not because of inadequacy of God. It's not because God is forgetful. It's really for God's people. And it's for God's people down through the generations because that blood had its efficacy, not in that lamb, not in that kid goat, but because that blood pointed to the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it is only his blood that stays the executioner's hand. It is only when we're under the blood of Christ that we are free from sin. God commanded them to take and to put that blood on the doorposts across the top. God commanded that every Hebrew father was to do this, and every Hebrew father obeyed God just as God has commanded through Moses. He did this, and by doing so, can you imagine? He's thinking about it. Death death is coming to the firstborn. And God said, All I need to do is take that blood and just mark my doorposts and mark my lentil with that blood, and and God's going to pass over. That's incredible. By the blood, being under the blood, they were safe. Some important principles here. I've already been alluding to them. I'm not tied to my notes this morning, but you've already heard this. The blood represented literally a victim a kid goat, a male kid goat within the first year, a, a, a lamb from the flock without blemish. What has that animal done It was wrong? I mean, they're not even moral creatures. Lambs and kid goats don't sin. They, they had no guilt before God. They they did not deserve to die. Some people think this is awful, and they decry Christianity and the scriptures and everything, but God is God, and the creatures are God's creatures, and God appointed this to be done because it was to point to Christ. And so here we have this, this spotless lamb who became a victim of, It was a sacrifice made in the place of the firstborn in that house, that animal died. And the blood was placed, and God promised, if you do this, you'll be safe. Why did they do that? Well, for some, they did it because of faith. Others did it out of blind obedience. But there were those within Israel that had faith in God. We'll see that it's but a remnant as we make our way on into the book. But the blood was the blood of a victim. Another had died in the place. Do you see Christ in this? What do we deserve? We deserve death every one of us, from the youngest and the littlest of your children, even, even children who cannot comprehend even these things. Uh, but praise God, you're here, you're growing up, and you're learning, you're hearing these things as you grow. But children, some of you are able to hear and understand these things. You deserve to die. You deserve to die an everlasting death at the hands of the living God because you're sinners but God. David Prescott my pastor way back in covenant all those years I'm looking forward to seeing him this evening at this point he'd always say I love the butt of the gospel but God God has provided a lamb God has provided a victim God has sent his only begotten son into the world to save sinners and it was because of his son that that type that shadow that little victim's blood was effective." because of a greater one's blood that would be shed, and therefore death passed over. And indeed it is by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The sinners from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation have salvation. God has provided a lamb. Jesus is the victim who died in the place of others. But he wasn't a victim who It was meandering around in heaven one day, and God seized him and threw him to earth to do this. No, Jesus came willingly. Remember John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But if I could take and change that a little bit, not to be in any way uh, adding to the scripture, because the scripture teaches that Christ so loved the world that he came into the world to save sinners. And let's add and go another step. The Holy Spirit so loved the world, that is particularly the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, loving all those that the Father had given to his Son, that the Holy Spirit came into your wretched, dark, foul, festering, sin-corrupted heart. And he brought life. He regenerated you. He renewed your will. He did what the Father sent him to do because of the completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're talking about application. The Holy Spirit brings that application of what Christ accomplished to our hearts, to our lives. And He abides with us. And He works in us. He stays with us throughout our days, working to perfect us. And boy, are we a mess. Every now and then I've done some woodworking and you'd be working on a board and there's a knot in it. Maybe trying to plane it or whatever, and it's just not cooperative. I, I have an uncompleted project on my workbench right now that um, I worked with some maple wood that was a little too green, and there was a knot in it, and as it dried, that board went, Ring! and I can't use it in the project anymore. That's just a small picture of what we are. We're so uncooperative at times, and yet the Holy Spirit abides with us. Why? because the Holy Spirit loves us, but because God sent His Son to die for us. And indeed, that death has secured us and that the work that Christ has secured in us will be completed against that glorious day. We will become holy. By the working of the Holy Spirit, we are declared holy. We are just in Christ. You are no more just before God. You are no more justified right now than the saints that are in heaven around the throne but they are far more holy than we are. And the Holy Spirit continues that work. He abides with us to apply what Christ has done again and again and again. Paul says to us, Romans 8:13, if you live according to the flesh, isn't that what we're kind of bent to do? You will die. If you live according to the flesh, you'll die. If you just, if you just go with what your flesh wants, You just let it lead you. And now what we're told is follow your heart. That's heresy. But Paul goes on, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. There will be fruit in your life. There will be evidence that you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, that you've been bought by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, because the Holy Spirit is working in you to grow up in Christ. Christ's blood applied to us. Christ's righteousness applied in the Holy Spirit working in us. And thus Christ is the author. He began it. He secured it. He paid for it. And he is the completer or the perfecter or some, some sense in some translation, the matureter. What he's begun, he will bring it to completion. That's why Paul says it is God who works in you, both to will and to do. It is a good pleasure. Praise be to God. The Israelites are far from understanding those things. But those fathers did what they did. They put the blood as it was to be done. They applied it according to the commandment of God, and the death angel passed over. We come then to the celebration. The celebration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, verses 14 through 20, uh, tell us this. We've already read through that. This event in Egypt, this final mighty blow that God is going to inflict upon Egypt, was so great that God would have Israel remember it throughout their generations, that they're to begin every year with that. In that first month for a week, from the 14th day to the 21st day, they're to have a feast of unleavened bread. Because at the time of the Exodus, there was to be no unleavened bread. Why? it's hard to see when you're baking bread, what do you do? You you get the little packet of yeast, you put it in there, and away it goes. Back then, you'd have to kind of leave your dough out, and yeast, little bacteria would fall down on it, and and it would start to rise and work. And when a a woman wanted unleavened, when she wanted leavened bread, she would always take some of it that was active and set it aside for the next time she was going to make bread. She shouldn't have to wait and wait for the wild yeast to come. She could work it into the whole loaf, and then she could have another nice loaf. But they're going somewhere. There's no time for that. And God wants them to understand it. He first thing, get all the leaven out of your house. You're going on a journey. There's not going to be time for bread to rise in the future. And you're to be done with it, to put it out of the house. And God said, I want you to remember this. I want you to remember how you, you girded up your loins with your belt and you had your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand and that you ate a, bread, a meal in haste with unleavened bread. And so he says, you're going to have a feast Of unleavened bread. And how serious was God about it? You had to put all the leaven at the start of that week. All leaven is to be out of your house. It's not to be found anywhere in Israel. And someone who had leavened bread, they were to be cut off. It's the Old Testament way of saying excommunicated. To be put out of the community. You you did not live and function as one who was an Israelite. You did not obey God and you were to be put out of the congregation. It's a serious thing you imagine wandering in the wilderness, being led by the pillar of cloud by day and night, and, and you've got leaven at the celebration, and you'll be put out. You're left in the wilderness alone. That's, that's what happens. Children, uh, I pray that none of you end up becoming excommunicated because of sin that you won't repent of, because that's what happened. You're put out. Paul says, turn them over to the devil. So perhaps they might be saved by fire. It's a difficult place to be out there, outside of the church of God. What a blessing it is to be inside the church of God. You guys know we've moved and we moved and we moved. You guys are about to be the, the longest to have lived in one place. Another year, and that will be the case. One of the things we've talked about every time we move, we're, we belong to the Lord. We go find a church. And immediately we, we not only have friends, we have family. We have the brothers and sisters of Christ. We, we have community. We're not out in the world on our own. We're with God's people. And God wants them to have this celebration of unleavened bread that they would remember what God accomplished for them so long ago. Now, there's certain features of this first Passover that they would not, did not carry on. If you look at Numbers 9, 2 through 7, and Deuteronomy 16, 1 through 8, you will see that there was no longer in the slaughtering of the lamb and putting blood on the doorposts. That is not part of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What was was no leavened bread. A reminder that they were to travel. We get comfortable. Sometimes we get too comfortable. And God would have us to be uncomfortable living in the world, to be content there's, there's a right contentness, to be content in what the Lord has for us. But it's not good to be content in the world, to be content with the things of the world, to be content living in the world. We should have this longing for heaven, a longing to be free from sin and the war with sin. And the Lord has appointed a meal for us now as, as we look and we see the elements for the Lord's Supper here, which is the New Testament sacramental meal to remind us of the Lamb of God. Yes, the Passover meal, we'll have more to say about this. This We're far from done with this. It pointed to when Christ would come. I've already made that clear. But Christ has come, and we don't need a Passover meal. It's not a a meal for the church. It's not a meal for believers. This is, and this meal too reminds us, we're not of the world. Don't get comfortable In the world. Where do I get that from? Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Until I come. Jesus is coming again. Hallelujah. Jesus is coming again. He's going to take us out of this world. And in the twinkling of an eye, we will be glorified. We'll have new bodies. We'll be free from sin. We'll be free from living around the contradiction of sinners forevermore. And this meal should remind us of that. We're going to go out of here, and I hope you go out of here thinking about this meal. Jesus is coming again. And he's just fed me with the word and sacrament to sustain me through yet another week. And as the week progresses, I hope and I pray as your pastor that you're longing together again, longing to come together again to be reminded of what matters, to be reminded of Christ, to be pointed to Christ, and to be reminded Jesus is coming again. Let us not be like those that Peter writes about in 2 Peter. You know, it's like, you know, since the beginning of the world, you know, we've, everything's been going on. People are marrying, getting married. It's just, you know, everything's normal. Where is this coming? And we got friends that have died. Where, where is this coming? And Peter then says, it'll be like the days of Noah. Suddenly, the floods fell and people were caught unawares. Sisters and brothers, let it never be said that we were caught unawares live, always ready to go. We come to the Lord's house on the Lord's day. We're reminded of what, we remember, what matters. We're strengthened in Christ. We celebrate what he has done. We celebrate what is accomplished. We celebrate what is to come. We feast upon our Redeemer as he feeds us in the supper. And that brings us then to instruction. I know we're, spent a little bit, we're a little late here, but this is so important. I ask you, children, too, do you know what it's like to be a slave? To wake up and have somebody ordering you around, telling you what to do? You know what the answer really is to that question? Yes. We're slaves to sin unless Christ has set us free. You apart from Christ, you are a slave to Satan, to sin. Your father is the father of lies. Yes, you're baptized into Christ and you belong to him, but there's this, this tension. Your, your flesh wants to go the way of the world. Even though Christ has redeemed you, he's made promises to you. And if you would be free from your burden of sin... Come to Christ. Flee to Christ. Let him who is the Passover say, oh God have mercy on me a a little sinner, a young boy, a young girl. I don't want to live my days as a slave to sin and to Satan. Oh great Jesus Christ, the one who saves sinners, set me free. Because that was your promise when you read from Isaiah 61 in the synagogue in Nazareth come to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. To set the prisoners at Liberty. Lord, set my heart at liberty by the blood of Christ. Amen. O oh, Father in heaven, we marvel at the, the great lessons in the book of old, these, these words inspired by the Holy Spirit and written down by Moses. So many, many things happened, and Moses had many, many conversations. Lord, these are the things that are to endure. This is your word, and it is written for our instruction. Even these lessons of the people of old, that they were written, that we that we should not make their same mistakes, that we should not fall into their errors. And, Father, we're thankful that we, we dwell on this side of the cross, that we're not not looking at Christ through a veil and through signs and shadows and seeing, as it were, through a, a piece of glass that is dim and dirty. We, we have the fullness and we have the beauty. We have the glory of Christ set down as much as it can possibly be under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The only thing that will be great is when we, when we see him when he comes upon the clouds for when he comes, we shall see him as he is, and we shall be like him. Even what we just heard preached, we will be free from sin in every sense forevermore. Till he comes, Lord, strengthen us, bless us, and keep us. All for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.